in every job, you're bound to meet someone who just rubs you the wrong way. There's the guy who microwaves leftover fish in the break room, the loud talker who keeps you from focusing, the CEO who's successful because he's a psychopath. But if you listen closely, your gut might tell you if someone is more than just a bad coworker, especially when people are murdered and others go missing. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. The Otis National Guard base in Buzzards Bay, Cape Cod, has a very particular use to the U.S. government. According to a public description, its primary mission is intelligence. And the kind of information they gather there is of the utmost importance. These secrets go all the way to the top. Let me tell you, this is not just any airbase. It's here at Otis Air Base early in the evening on Saturday, September 27, 1997, that this week's case begins. A truly heartbreaking true crime story that starts with a phone call. I, however, first became aware of this case after an email. I get a lot of people writing to me wanting to tell me their stories. It's quite humbling and I love it. People see my work on Snap, Deadly Women, Dark Minds, or any number of the true crime shows I appear on, or they might have read one of my books or heard me on a podcast. And a little while ago, I heard from a guy who had a story he needed to talk about. It had been weighing on his heart for decades. And I'm just going to have my producer, Catherine Law, who you've heard chime in at times here on Crossing the Line, read that initial email from my source. Hello, Mr. Phelps. During the month of September 1997, I worked as a civilian contractor for the 102nd Security Police, located at Otis Air National Guard Base on Cape Cod. While working central control, I received a phone call from the Lowell Police Department. This phone call was regarding a fellow employee and a murder. It's a story that I've been living with since it happened. I was involved from the first phone call all the way to testifying in front of a grand jury. That email intrigued me. So I set up a time to talk with this guy. And what he told me that day shocked me. So tell me who you are. John Curry. I work currently for the Bosco County Sheriff's Office. And at the time of this incident, I worked for the 102nd Fighter Wing. And tell me a little bit about the Fighter Wing where you worked. I was a civilian contractor. I worked there for eight and a half years. I worked air-based ground defense. I was guarding a alert area where they had four F-15 aircraft on standby to do intercepts off the coast, the East Coast. They also flew to um, 9-11 to the World Trade Center in New York. They were the first aircraft on scene at that time. Doing base patrols, you know, making sure hangars, aircraft was secure, that nobody was on the flight line, that didn't belong on the flight line. You know, just security work. The type of horrific circumstance John Curry found himself embroiled in can really happen to anyone at any time. Because in the end, really, we might see someone every day, but 
do we really know the people we interact with in our everyday working life? I mean, you can be next to someone in a machine shop or in a cubicle all day long, every day, for years, and really know nothing about them. That's the point I want to make here. The base John describes is an important spoke in the wheel of our security in the United States, located where you'd least expect it. As you can imagine, there was a certain amount of trust among those who worked there. After all, dealing with national security, you'd think your coworkers were vetted to high heaven. But John goes on to explain there was one guy he worked with who, by most accounts, seemed kind of off, somewhat elusive and aloof at least to some. How did you meet Peter Contas? He was a co-worker at the time. Tell me about him. What kind of guy was he? What did he do? He did the same thing I did, but he was uh, in National Guard Reserve. He's a full-time reservist for the uh, Massachusetts, well, at the time, the Massachusetts Air National Guard. I believe he was a technical sergeant. And what kind of guy was he? Personally, I didn't care for him. How come? Kind of pompous. He's trying too hard to be a, a macho man, a tough guy, you know, a know-it-all more or less. I just would talk to him in passing. You know, we had a break area, break room, we'd sit down, eat our, our chow, our dinner. We worked the same shift together. We both worked the 3.30 shift. And, um, you know, in passing, I would talk to him, but I wouldn't go out of my way to have any kind of uh, conversation with him. Peter Contos was 32 years old in 1997 when he and John Curry worked together. He had that familiar military buzzed crew cut, thin lips, narrowly set eyes, and a gaze that some who knew the guy said felt shallow, but busy. By busy, what I mean is this. There was a lot going on behind Mr. Contos's eyes. Something, a look. I can say from my experience interviewing scores of people that you never forget once you've seen it. Contos grew up in a suburb of Lowell, Massachusetts, called Westport. This is close to the New Hampshire border in northern Mass. He went to Westford Academy High School, graduated in 1984. By 1986, he had enlisted. By 90, he joined the Air National Guard's 102nd Fighter Wing. His colonel called Contos a guy with a high degree of military bearing who always gave 110%. Now, Contos the military man and Contos the guy, well, those were two different people. One coworker who knew of his personal life said he would say things like, quote, it's good to be king, end quote. He was also described as having had a troubled childhood. Contos had a reputation around the base as that arrogant dude John Curry describes. He walked with a certain amount of hubris and flat out big headedness. Look, he thought he was the shit. In other words, we have all known a dude like this in our lifetimes. You may be working with one right now. Kanto served in the Air Force, working mostly security jobs. He was a technical sergeant with the 102nd Fighter Wing and guarded the F-15s at the Otis base. Although not very high stress, an important job nonetheless. His dream was to become a Massachusetts State Police Trooper, which I find, I don't know, very strange. John Curry had lots of interaction with Peter Contos at the base, but unlike some other co-workers, John Curry kept his distance from Mr. Contos simply because he rubbed John the wrong way. See, John was listening to his gut. And John being as humble as he is, 
he won't say it, but he had developed a very keen sense of intuition throughout his years in service to the country. So he listened to the visceral reaction he experienced around Peter Kantos. The one thing, however, that John never saw come out of Peter Kantos was anger. The guy was able to maintain or compartmentalize a fairly flat affect and demeanor, which provided a bit of secrecy surrounding the guy. Peter kept his personal life a mystery in some ways. He was very much guarded where that part of him was concerned. Yet the one thing he made very clear to everyone at the base, his feelings about kids. We were sitting in that break room at the table one night and having our dinner, chow. I had just had a a son myself. He was at the time, he was born in 94. So he was like three, four years old. And we're talking about kids more or less. And he kind of snickered a little bit, said, you know, kids, I'll never have kids. At the same time he worked at the base, Peter Contos also moonlighted at a nearby mall as a security guard, kind of like Paul Blart from Mall Cop. (laughs) I'm really happy about that reference. There, his co-workers would later say he projected a different type of persona. He bragged about himself a lot more, especially his personal life. And he talked about the kind of player he was, for example, where it pertained to women. And it kind of makes sense in hindsight that Contos was one person at the base, another at his other job. This was a pattern in his overall life. It's this inconsistency in Peter's personal life that becomes the catalyst for what's to come. Well, what happened was I was working the desk that night, uh, central security control, taking phone calls, you know, and I received a call. I don't know exactly what time it was, but the individual on the other line identified himself as Sergeant from the Lowell Police Department. I said, okay. And I didn't, you know, recognize the name or the voice or anything. So I said, you know, how can I help you, sir? And he says, uh, he asked if we have a Peter Contos working at the base. I said, we do, but he's not currently working right now. And he asked, I'll never forget, if he owned a maroon-colored Dodge Omni. It was a hatchback. I said, yes, he does. And he's not there right now. I said, no, is there, you know, can I take a message to pass along to him? Or you don't want to leave your name or something? He goes, well, he didn't really want to. And then he's, you know, asked, what is this in regards to? And he said that Mr. Contos was wanted for questioning in the murder of his wife and disappearance of his two kids. So I found that is odd. And I even said to him on the phone, I said, I don't know if you have the right Peter Contos because he doesn't have kids with his wife. He goes, it's uh, Catherine Rice. I said, no, his wife's name is Robin. He goes, okay, well, Let me give you my name and phone number. And if you should see him or talk to him, give him my name and number, please. So I hung up the phone and and thought that was really odd. John was beyond bewildered and confused. He knew Contos' wife was Robin and kids. Peter was adamant to everyone at the base that he did not have kids, nor did he ever want them. And murder? The state police, he thought, must have the wrong guy. But of course, they didn't. When we come back, you'll find out how an Air Force base becomes the scene of a search party for two little kids. The murder of his wife. 
That quote rang in the ears of everyone at the base after that state police phone call John Curry took near 9 p.m. on that night in September 1997. John couldn't wrap his mind around it. Peter Contos' wife's name is Robin, not Catherine. And the guy was vehemently against having kids. They must have the wrong guy. Contos was arrogant and narcissistic, but a killer? No way. We can't really know what people's lives are like when they head home after work. Behind closed doors, the only people who know what goes on in someone's life are the people that are there. And if Peter Contos is any indication, the truth is, not by a long shot. Because what happens next is unfathomable. John Curry's supervisor stood in the room as John took that call from the state police, and he explains what came through on that call. My supervisor says, Pete doesn't have any kids. I said, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know what the hell is going on here. So he tells me, my supervisor, why don't you give Pete a call and ask him what's going on? I said, sir, do you, you think that's a good idea? Say he did do something he's not supposed to have done. What the hell am I going to say to him on the phone? Hey, did you kill your wife and kids? Being a military establishment, however, John follows orders and calls Peter Contos, who answers the phone. I said, hey, Pete, uh, what do you got going on? What are you up to? And it was real weird. His voice was weird. I'm painting my kitchen. Just dry, flat. Wow. No emotion. I said, well, why don't you sit down for a minute? I got a kind of an odd question for you. Yep. Wow, this is kind of weird. And I said, uh, this might sound strange, but we just got a call from the Lowell Police Department, a sergeant. He was looking for you and said that uh, he he wants to talk to you about the murder of your wife and disappearance of your children. Now, there is no doubt that Peter Contos' wife is Robin Contos. Peter and Robin had been married about a year and lived with her parents in Stoneham, Massachusetts. According to neighbors in that suburban community where they lived, Peter was your typical husband, typical neighborhood dude. Quote, he seemed like a pleasant young man, said one woman. I would see him walking his dog. Those who saw Peter with Robin said they seemed like a normal, happy, newlywed couple. Contos had no prior domestic violence charges or any trouble with the law at all. And get this. A friend of Robin's said Peter Contos was, quote, one of the greatest people I ever met, end quote. So for John, listening to Peter talk about painting his kitchen while John's asking about his wife's murder was surreal and baffling at the same time. Now, obviously, I don't personally know you, but if I called you up and said, hey, Matthew, somebody called and said you killed your wife and kids, wouldn't you be like, what are you shitting me? What's going on here? What the hell are you talking about? Dead air, nothing. Nothing. No response, no nothing. So I said, hey, uh, Pete, you're still there? I thought maybe he hung up. Like, you know, this is bullshit. Because, again, we weren't, like, drinking buddies. So I said his name three more times. Pete, you still there? Pete. And I get, yeah. So right then, honest to God, I, I felt like I was going to throw up, to be honest with you. You knew? Yeah, just that feeling that, because like I said to you, the, the response of, yeah, that's what it was. I said, well, Pete. Uh, Maybe uh, you should give this guy a call. Here's his name and his number. Yeah. So I was like, oh, all right. And I hung up. I turned around and my supervisor said, well, what did he say? 
I said, what the hell do you think he said? He, he knows nothing about it or whatever. Goes, yeah, I told you it was no big deal. I said, I don't know. I don't have a good feeling about this. I feel like I'm going to be sick to my stomach. You know, it felt like somebody kicked me right in the, in the gut, you know? So I waited a few minutes and the supervisor left to do his tour or whatever he was doing. And I called the Lowell Police Department. And I said, sir, I just talked to him. Did he call you? No, he hasn't called. Well, he's at his house right now in Stone. And I just spoke with him three or four minutes ago. The Massachusetts State Police then rounded up Peter Contos at his house. And get this, his wife Robin was there with him, along with his in-laws. Right away, the state police realized they have a developing investigation. You see, they had found Catherine Rice dead, strangled to death with what appeared to be a wire and beaten in the face in her half-filled bathtub. Her two children were missing. And as they knocked on doors in the neighborhood, everyone they had spoken to aside from John said that Catherine was Peter Contos's wife. Turns out Catherine Rice was a woman Peter Contos had been in a relationship with for four years, and they'd had two kids together. She lived about 15 miles away from where he lived with his actual lawfully wedded wife of one year, Robin. Mr. Devoted Family Man agreed to go down to the station house and answer questions about Catherine Rice, who was, state police realized by now, Contos's girlfriend, his mistress. Surprise! Peter Contos, the guy who didn't want kids, he had a girlfriend named Catherine and two kids with her. And after having those kids, went off, met Robin, and actually married her. I mean, if you won't put a ring on it, there's probably a reason. Although that reason is not usually that there is a ring already on somebody else's finger. Now that is an excellent point, Catherine. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with you 100%. (laughs) Red flags. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this story sounds a little bit confusing, but it's really not. This guy had two lives. One was his wife. The other was his mistress. And she had two kids. And police find the mistress murdered in her bathtub. And the kids are missing. Peter Contos could not get out of talking with police, and he knew this. You see, they had a witness who had given a statement by then, claiming she saw Contos's vehicle parked outside Catherine Rice's apartment on the previous night, Friday, somewhere near midnight. And this same witness said she saw him toss a bag into the back of his car and speed off. The first thing out of Contos's mouth when he gets to the station house is this. I've not seen Catherine Rice since Christmas of the previous year. So detectives present some of the information from their witness statement. Oh, geez, that's right. Kanto suddenly remembers something now. He says, and you know what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was outside Catherine's apartment on Friday night. I parked in the driveway. But you know what? I never went in. Hmm. Well, that sounds a bit sketchy. Yeah. I mean, this is Mr. Family Man. Right. So the state police call him on what they know is his bullshit. And for a third time, Peter Contos changes his story. Now he says, oh, geez, darn it. That's right. I did go in, but I stayed for only like 30 minutes. And oh, yeah, I have two kids with her. He throws that out there. I don't know where they are, however. By the way, I have two kids with this woman, BT dubs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what, detectives? I have two kids with this woman and I forgot and I don't know where they are I mean yeah you know one thing all detectives know is that if someone tailors his story to fit whatever information they have well look 
They're lying. Peter Contos was not a good liar. Detectives were cracking him without even trying. The interview continues well into Sunday morning. By the time Contos is sitting, talking to police, John Curry had finished his 3.30 to 11.30 p.m. shift and was now at home sleeping. That's when he got a call from the base. Contos had been seen at the base earlier on Saturday morning. If you recall, he left Catherine Rice's apartment at 6.30 a.m., and it's clear now he drove from there, the Stoneham, Massachusetts area, 90 minutes or 80 miles straight to the base in Buzzards Bay. The question becomes, why? Back at the base, someone had found a dirty diaper and several empty kids' yogurt containers inside a garbage bin. So it appears that someone had kids at the base recently and they were alive. Everyone involved was now praying those kids were okay and a massive search party forms at the base. Here's John Curry again explaining what happens as he gets a call to come back into the base and help search for two missing kids. So I, you know, I lived maybe 10, 15 minutes from the base. So I got dressed and flew into work. And when I got there, the other guys from work were there. The state police were there. And we had grid maps out. And they were trying to figure out where to maybe look where he might have been. Because they also searched his dorm room that he had at the barracks. And they found his fatigues over the bedpost. Uh, They were wet and sandy, the, the military clothing. And they also found in his car one of the collapsible shovels. They found that, and that had sand on it, and the pants were wet and sandy. So they they figured he had dug a hole. And after going over the grid maps and stuff like that, we had another building, building 868. We had big, oversized mobility lockers where you kept flak vest, helmets, any kind of equipment you might need for work. And... One of the guys, you know, said, geez, did anybody go over and search his locker? And another guy stepped up and said, well, he was storing live ammunition in that locker, which, you know, obviously not supposed to do. He was an armorer for the 102nd as well. He worked in the armory as far as passing out M16s, ammunition, going out to the ranges and conducting that stuff. They all head over to Pete Contos's locker. So they cut the lock on his locker. They opened it up reached in and took out a military-style green duffel bag, placed it on the floor in front of the locker, and he was kneeling on it and going through stuff that Pete had in there. He had a, a ton, I don't know exactly how much, but he had quite a bit of ammunition stored in there, 762 military ammunitions for the M16s. He had a bunch of that in there, and then his, he was nailing on the bag. He said, this feels weird, like he's got a bag of guns or something here. When they unzipped it, um, The kids were in there wrapped in plastic. Peter Contos had murdered not only his girlfriend, but his own children. He had strangled the kids, same as he had Catherine Rice with a garrote type of weapon, a piece of wire with two handles, like you'd use to cut a piece of clay from a pottery wheel. They had slits in their throats, but not like with a knife. He took the garrote and tightened it around their throats until they were dead. The brutality of these murders cannot be overstated. Horrific cases like this stay with a person, as they did with John Curry. 
It's stories like these that remind us monsters are real. We'll be right back. You know, I often stay away from these stories because of this very thing, the heaviness and sheer madness, the weight this stuff has on the heart. But what we experience hearing these stories is one millionth of what the families of the victims go through. So it's important, really, for me to tell these stories, to tell John Curry's story. After making that horrifying discovery, they searched most of the base to see if there was any other evidence, but found nothing. Contos, of course, is charged with triple murder. He was living this double life that was closing in on him, and he felt he had to take out his family in order to not get caught by his wife, Robin. He'd gotten away with it for so long by telling each of the women it was his work on the base that kept him away for such long stretches of time. He even made Catherine page him whenever she wanted to get a hold of him, which is why no one at the base had ever heard from or of her. It's unfathomable to think that someone could even consider murder as a resolution to a problem. But there are psychopaths in our midst who think this way. According to Kantos, and he did admit finally that he committed the murders, it all happened in the, quote, heat of the moment, which in my opinion, Sounds like something a lawyer told him to say. Those kids were still in their pajamas when they were found. Come to find out, Catherine Rice became pregnant with Peter Contos, his second child, just two months after he married Robin. The walls were closing in on this guy. He knew he was about to get caught, and murder was his solution. As John Curry explains to me next, we now know that Peter Contos realized a few days before the murders that his leading a double life days were numbered. After he found out, Catherine Rice had actually called the base. Well, previous to um, me answering the call, it was either Thursday or Friday, another guy working the desk answered the phone. And people can be nosy. So we come to find out it was Catherine Rice, the girlfriend actually called the base looking for him she had never done that before because like i said we didn't know he had this alternate life so the guy on the phone asked her is this his wife robin so she said no tell him it's kathy so he came in you know the guy working the desk called him on the radio and said hey pete come on into central control get a message for you because you don't want to put that over the radio you know people's business you know right he came in, he said, uh, some woman, Kathy, called for you. And it was just like a blank face, you know. He goes, okay, thanks. And off he went, you know, to whatever he was doing. You know, and then she's dead Saturday night. So the cat was out of the bag. So Kathy then found out, oh, my God, you got a wife? Yep. Peter Contos went over there and Catherine confronted him with the notion of Contos being married. There can be no doubt about this. And Peter Contos chose to murder her and the kids, wipe them out instead of facing the issue head on like a man. Do you think some of this had to do with something as selfish as like not wanting to pay child support? I'm sure as a narcissistic psychopath, that was part of it. But it was definitely not the impetus for the murders. The murders Mm. were to hide his secret, to take his secret off the table. 
because he had been exposed. That one phone call exposed him. I I never understand why some people think that murder is a better solution than divorce. So your new wife finds out about your girlfriend, your mistress, and two kids and leaves you. That's so much better than spending the rest of your life in jail. That's also so much better than having to murder two people. But psychopaths are really only thinking about themselves. Yeah, I'm going to talk about this in more depth in a future episode. But there's some narcissistic immunity. That's what it's called. Narcissistic Mm. immunity here where Peter Kantos really believes that he can get away with this. He believes Mm -hmm. that when he sits down and talks to the police, they're going to believe what he says. Right. He actually believes that. I can't stress this enough. I mean, narcissist, psychopath, sociopath, those terms are thrown around a lot on social media and internet and TV and everything. But you have to understand, he thinks this way. He doesn't think logically like, Oh, if I do this, this will happen, and then this will happen. He thinks, if I do this, they're going to believe what I say. Listen, a message to all men, you're probably not as good of a liar as you think you are. We can always tell. Exactly. We know. Exactly. Uh, The truth always comes out. Yep. That's what my ex-wife used to say. The truth always comes out. (laughs) Oh, that's what I tell my husband constantly. I'm like, I always know. I know when you're lying. I do. Uh, You never want to hear that as a man, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Contos was convicted on three separate first-degree murder charges. Benjamin Rice was four years old, his brother Ryan just two months old. Two months old. Catherine Rice was 35. Judge Robert Barton said this, this defendant deserves no less than the death sentences he imposed on Catherine Rice and his own children. However, I do not have that authority, end quote. Contos was then given three mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole. Catherine's father, Dr. Cecil Rice, said in court, quote, we are proud that our daughter was able to stand up to him and ask that he stop being a boy and become a man. She asked him to take responsibility for his sons and stop living a double life, end quote. Just as I was wrapping up my interview with John, his wife came into the frame of our video call. We didn't know, but she was actually right there supporting him the whole time while he was talking about all this stuff. Yeah, it was, it was really great. It was a really special moment. And it was Wendy Curry, John's wife, who actually encouraged him to send me that initial email. But here she is. The reason why I asked him to reach out is because this man has been tortured by this. You saw him almost break down several times. He has nightmares. It's something that stayed with him. And I'm hoping that this is a cathartic thing for him. And we hope that for you too, John. You know, people who experience true horrors in their lives may never forget them, but there is always a chance for healing. Trust me on that. I will see you here next week. Please subscribe to Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a week. Sources for today's episode include Convicted Killer Gets Three Life Sentences, 
Nikita Contos's secret lives collided, bringing tragedy to three families, and accused killer led double life, all from the Associated Press. Suspect pleads innocent in deaths of girlfriend, kids, by Leslie Miller, the Associated Press. Murder victims laid to rest in emotional ceremony, Patrick Collins, the Ottawa News. Police say suspect led double life, Dan Vasquez, Globe staff, the Boston Globe. Commonwealth versus Peter Contos, Supreme Court of Massachusetts, Middlesex decision, and Phelps interview with witness John Curry. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.